0: You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter six. We'll look this morning at verses 27 through 36, making our way through uh, what in Matthew's Gospel is, uh, cle- is clearly called um, a a sermon or a teaching that takes place on a mount. So, in the church, we've called it the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking in Luke chapter six beginning at verse 27 little theologians this is very easy i want you to draw a house with a front yard and a backyard okay a house with a front yard and a backyard you're going to have to work on that backyard setting as i give the introduction to the sermon after we read the text but a house with a front yard and a backyard luke chapter 6 verse 27 is where we are let me pray for us and then we will look at the at the uh, passage together. Uh, Father, we do love your Word, and we pray that by your Spirit you would increase our affection for your Word, but also that you would uh, increase our desire to conform ourselves unto your Word. Father, thank you for telling us what it is to believe that we might be acceptable before you, and what it is to do that we might be holy before you. In Jesus' name, amen. And as you wish that others would do to you, so you to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of our Lord. I'm tempted to ask, how many of you have heard of the American poet Gwendolyn Brooks, that I can have a show of hands, but I won't do that. That's weird for Presbyterians. Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, you'll have to trust me if you don't already know of her. She is a a fantastic, wonderful poet. She died uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, She was, I think, she was the first poet laureate. Uh, That's not a title that we uh, use much in our country, but I think she was the first Poet laureate, but one Pulitzer's very, very gifted uh, poet. Uh, she wrote a poem that I think is relevant to this passage. You see, Jesus is saying to his disciples. Uh, uh, remember, his disciples are crowded around him. There's a large crowd outside of the disciples, but he's speaking specifically to his disciples. And I think Jesus is preparing them to live in a world that is dangerous. And Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, has written a poem called A Song in the Front Yard. It's a poem about a little girl who longs to play in the backyard, but she is trapped in the front yard, so to speak. She says, I've played in the front yard all my life. And the reason she plays in the front yard is because that's where her mom wants her to play. It's safe in the front yard. There are gardens in the front yard. She says something along the lines of, I'm tired of seeing roses. She wants to play in the backyard. And the reason she wants to play in the backyard is because there are kids back there playing. And to this little girl, those kids seem to be having a wonderful time, and there aren't any kids in the front yard. And as she desires to go play in the backyard, her mother sneers at her, not wanting her to play in the backyard. It must be that the backyard, the poem doesn't say this, but that the backyard opens to an alley and it's dangerous back there. It's not manicured back there. And the kids that are back there are the kind of kids that the girl's mom doesn't want her to play with. And so mom sneers at the little girl and she says, Johnny May will be a bad woman when she grows up. Johnny May is one of those girls that plays in the backyard. And not only will Johnny May be a bad woman when she grows up, George is going to go to jail soon. The mom just knows it. George is going to go to jail. But the little girl is undeterred. And a wonderful line in the last stanza is the little girl saying, I'd like to be a bad woman too. I'd like to be a bad woman too. And, and when you read that, you have to, you have to uh, hear the playfulness uh, behind those lines. She, this little girl, wants to strut down the street with her head covered for, in order to break the law like the people in the backyard. She wants to play with people. And this illustration is important because I think of that great prayer in John chapter 17 when Jesus prays for His disciples. Jesus is about to die on the cross. And He prays for His disciples because Jesus knows that He is leaving this world. But His disciples are staying. And Jesus says to His heavenly Father in that prayer, but now I am coming to You, God. And these things I speak in the world that they... My disciples may have My joy fulfilled in themselves. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus knows this very well. Jesus continues in this prayer. He says to His heavenly Father, Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Like Me, they are not of the world. Jesus goes on and He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Imagine that. God sends Jesus into the world and Jesus then sends His church into the world. Jesus takes His church, followers of Him, and He sends them to the backyard. That they might go into that backyard and they might bring to bear on that backyard the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. He is telling us how we are to behave as Christians, representatives of Jesus Christ in this world, as dangerous as it is. So when we look at this passage, we see that that the love of God ought to somehow characterize us in such a way that the love that we express in the world is represented in the love that God has for us. God's love characterizes us, defines us, makes us who we are, and somehow as we go into the dangers of the backyard, the world needs to see that. These Christians are different. There is something that has happened to them, and it's being brought to bear on the world in which I live. There's something different about Christians. Well, Jesus is saying that what's different about Christians is that the love that they express in the world is very different than the love that pagans express in the world. Christians enter the backyard, and they're different. Well, I think this passage does uh, just two things. It shows us what love looks like in the kingdom of God. That is, what it looks like when a Christian goes into the world and displays the kingdom of God in the world through love. And Jesus, I think, here is doing two things. He's describing what's at the root of that strange Christian kingdom of God love. What's at the root of it? That's the first thing he does. And the second thing he does is he describes how it's lived out. he, He speaks in a very staccato fashion, very quick, But I think you can read in this passage ways in which the kingdom of God, the love that Christians have being marked by the love that God has for them, that how that love is lived out in the backyard. So first of all, the love in the kingdom of God at its root. Just three things real quick. When you begin at verse 27 and you read these imperatives, how hard and striking they are, these great commands from Jesus. Jesus is not pulling back. He's not holding his punches. He says, love your enemy. And the verb he uses as an imperative, do this. He says, do good to those who hate you. He says, uh, bless those who curse you. I think that might, that might be... Uh, Pray for those who curse you, which is similar to him saying, pray for those who threaten you or abuse you. And they're striking imperatives. They're forceful. And I think what Jesus is doing, the first thing that he's doing when he's describing the root of what this Christian love looks out, looks like as it's expressed in the backyard, he's saying that love in the kingdom of God actually combats not the world, but the heart. He's saying to His disciples, as you go out into the world, I'm asking you to do things that are so hard that really the enemy isn't out there as much as the enemy is right inside of you because the things that I am telling you to do are things that are very hard. They combat your self-centeredness, your self-preservation, your great love, adoration of yourself. Jesus throttles it with these imperatives. Now look, This is a very difficult text in the sense that a lot of non-believers will quote this and use this as armament against Christians. Here's what Christians are told to do, and yet I never see Christians do that. And they quote the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not saying that they're making a legitimate use of God's holy word. But I am saying that what Jesus says here he means. Let me offer some proof. Peter is a very violent man. Peter the apostle is a very violent man. What's the proof for this? What kind of man pulls out a sword and removes the right ear of a guy? Peter does that. Peter speaks quickly. Peter seems to love confrontation. And Peter would seem to love even violence. And yet, Peter is the one who preaches to a congregation? Actually, a number of congregations. First and Second Peter are addressed to a number of congregations that are meant, that are actually enduring persecution. And Peter says to them in First Peter three nine Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Peter seems to be hearing the Sermon on the Mount and applying it rather literally, and so he advises the churches that he's writing to. Paul in 1 Thessalonians and Romans says this. He says, See to it that no one repays evil for evil. Do you think it's just a suggestion? Do you think it's an exaggeration? Do you think it's a literary device? Paul later in Romans 12 is actually going to quote Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to quote from Matthew's Gospel, not Luke's. But Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, Never avenge yourselves... But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's the quote from the Sermon on the Mount. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. It seems like Jesus means this. That we're to love our enemies. To do good to those who hate us. To bless those who curse us and to pray for those who threaten us. Does anyone remember offhand the last words of Stephen, that deacon in the New Testament church, who was not executed? He was murdered in cold blood in public. His last words are in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, and they're this Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he dies. Jesus is hung upon a cross, and the first words that He utters in Luke's Gospel, Luke 23, 34 are these, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It seems as though what's happening in these first few verses is that Jesus is very serious. He's not using His words as a literary device. He's not simply exaggerating. He really wants us as Christians to live in a way that is very different than the rest of the world. And when you hear these words, you should admit at least this. Let's not not talk about how to parse all of those things, how exactly you do those things. But you must, Christian, admit this, that love in the kingdom of God is radically opposed to your rapid revenge. Radically opposed to your desire for self-justification. Radically opposed to your selfishness. Can we at least get that far to describe what exactly the root of love in the kingdom of God is like? It's radically, radically opposed to your desire for self-justification. Let's keep working our way through this. Love in the kingdom of God at its root. The first thing is, is that it radically combats our own self-centeredness. The second thing is this, is that love in the kingdom of God actually communicates with others. We have something to say and do to others that we discover in the backyard. And this is from verse 31. As you wish that others would do to you, so or do so to them. Now, It may be that Jesus here is actually quoting a pagan author. That may be. I'm not opposed to that. Many commentators I like say that's what's happening. Uh, Paul certainly does that in Acts chapter 17. But what Jesus does is he emphasizes something in this statement. You see, the negative version is what's most popular in pagan literature of the day. The negative version would not say, as you wish that others would do to you. The, The pagan version would say, look, if you don't want people to do that, don't do that to them. Right? They're a pair of no's. Right? If you don't want them to do that to you, then you don't do that to them. But Jesus goes one step further. By the way, I think that's the part of the mission statement of Google, isn't it? Don't be evil. Am I right? It, it's don't do this. And Jesus goes one step further and he says, yes, but you should do this. And he says, if you want them to do these things to you, you need to do them to them. You know, we think that our evangelism is nothing more than sharing the words of Jesus. But the actions of Jesus, we have an opportunity to share as well. Imagine what that's like. A person who is not doing things to you that you want them to do, Jesus says, well, okay, that's painful and that's hurtful, but I want you to do the things to them that you would like for them to do to you. And immediately, Jesus takes us out of ourselves, and in in many ways, He hurts us. Because the only response is, Jesus, that is painful. It's, not only do I not think I can do that, I don't want to do that. This person is never going to be grateful. But Jesus already, before sending his disciples out, he says, you actually have something to say to the, to the people in the backyard. You actually have something to do before the people in the backyard. Do those things to them that you want them to one day do to you. They may never do it. Jesus doesn't make that promise. But Christian, don't think that you don't have a message if you don't um, understand the philosophical underpinnings of the gospel. Please don't think that you don't have a message if you don't have a prepared story of redemption to share with people. Please don't say that you don't have a message if you're profoundly introverted. Jesus says there is something about the Christian life, the Christian love as it's expressed in the backyard, that is actually witnessed by others as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. That's the second thing in terms of the rootedness of what this love looks like. The third thing is this, is that love in the kingdom of God expresses really good doctrine. The very end of the passage, verses 35 through 36. It's almost like this is the only application that we're given. The disciples might hear Jesus and they say, okay, I hear you, love your enemy, do good to haters, bless those who curse you and pray for those who threaten you. Now, how do I do that? You know, sometimes, sometimes an application is not just a lesson. Do you remember um, biology, high school biology? You go to class and there's someone lecturing to you. Uh, There's maybe, from my day, there were overhead projectors. Uh, Maybe you like the teacher, maybe you don't like the teacher, but then something happens in that biology class when you start dissecting. When you start dissecting, you're beginning to see things a lot more clearly. The class suddenly becomes interesting. You now want to show up rather than cut. There's two ways to teach. One way is to just teach, to share the content. Another way is getting people in it by unearthing the mechanics of why I'm telling you what to do. There's, uh, there's a time to study the rat, to draw pictures of the rat, to hear wonderful discussions about rat life and rat organs. And then there's a time to cut it open, to peel back its fur and see what's in there. And I think that's the application that Jesus gives us in verse 35, verses 35 and 36. Let, let me let me see if I can get you to see this by asking this question: What can people, people in the backyard, non-believers, what can they expect from God? Well, Jesus says that God is kind even to the ungrateful and the evil. You see that in the verse, yes? That God is kind even to the ungrateful and the evil. God is filled with mercy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 45, uh, God, Jesus says that God makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends His rain on the just and on the unjust. God is doing that around us right now. God is preserving the world. The fact that there is a backyard with living people in it, that is a testimony of our, good, our God's wonderful grace. He is sustaining the world. What can the pagan expect from God? Apparently, the pagan can expect patience and forbearance from God. Let me ask the same question to you who profess faith in Jesus. What can the Christian expect from God? And here's the answer. Everything. Everything. You are the Son of the Most High, Jesus says to you. Jesus says to you that you are the one who God is, gr- is merciful and gracious to to such a degree that He saves you, that you have life with Him for all eternity. And when you see that, you begin to understand, wait a minute, I'm fighting for myself to justify myself. But I have everything. God crushes His Son that I might have life. What can the Christian expect from God? Everything. Everything. That's the dissection of what it means to be a Christian. And Christian, if you understand that, then you're far more willing to loan, uh, loan to people who might not pay back, to treat people in a way that they don't treat you, to care for your enemy that they have food and water, to pray for them. Three things real quick. What is is the root of the kingdom, the love that Christians express by being part of the kingdom of God? Love in the kingdom of God absolutely combats our self-centeredness. It communicates well to others. We actually do have a message that we can give with our lives. And the kingdom of God expresses this wonderful, beautiful doctrine that I am saved by grace and grace alone. And that in God I have given nothing but I have everything. Well, now it's time, I think, to go into the backyard and talk about what does it look like then to, to live this out. You know, commentators look at this part of the sermon and they say what happens is there are two application portions in the sermon, but they're in the middle. So you have doctrine, application, doctrine, application, doctrine. And what I've done is I've just walked you through those three doctrine portions. And then the application portions, there's, there's four illustrations um, in one part, and there's three illustrations in another. Let me tell you what I mean by looking at, at the first part of the application, verses 29 through 30. There's four illustrations here, and all of these illustrations have to do with what it looks like when you go into the backyard and people confront you. They challenge you. One illustration is, for the guy who injures you, the hitter, the striker, for that person who's hit you on the jaw, let them hit you a second time. Illustration one. Illustration two. For the borrower, the one who takes things away from you. And I think this is in reference to borrowing something. I think there's legitimacy here. For the borrower who takes something from you but doesn't return it and then asks to borrow again, give them your tunic. That's the second illustration. The third illustration is not the injurer or the borrower, but the asker, the asker, someone who asks something of you. Uh, the reference here is, is with regards to someone who is in a state of poverty, so it's often translated as begging, so the beggar. When that, when that person asks something of you, give to them. And then the fourth one is the taker. I think this is the thief, the one who takes all your goods. I think that's the thief. And when that person does that, don't, don't insist upon your quick demands to get everything returned. These are your illustrations, Christian. You ever met someone like this? The injurer, the borrower, the asker or beggar, and then the thief, the taker. In all of these situations, we're confronted with the realities of the world in which we live. Jesus knows that. He understands that about the world that he's about to turn us loose into. These are situations in which we are confronted. Even if you think that you can mind your own business, you're still hurt by people. It may be, maybe it's not the injurer that gets you. Maybe it's the borrower that gets you or the asker or maybe it's the thief but you can't just mind your own business. This is the world that we live in. And the, the response that Jesus gives, we shouldn't understand, is this is just a, a, a list of things to do. When this happens, you always respond in this way. I don't read it that way. I don't think Jesus is trying to create a three-ring binder with a manual. When this happens, you always respond in this way. And and proof of that is is that, you know, sometimes you do need to stand up and protect yourself. Acts chapter 16 is a great picture of Paul doing that. He stands up and he defends himself before the law. And, you know, sometimes you're, you're told in Scripture not to give money to lazy people right, people who are idle, who refuse to work. There are some situations where you shouldn't give them money. And there are some people who actually are just leeches. Proverbs 30, 15 talks about uh, people who are leeches. And you're foolish if you just keep giving to leeches. You're just foolish. So you can't read this verse and say, well, this is just formulaically how I live as a Christian. And if you can't read it that, that way, how ought you to read it? Uh, I think you should get this out of all four of those illustrations. Not only are these situations in which we were confronted by inhabitants of the backyard, but these are all situations in which our impulse is obvious. Our impulse is obvious. When someone hits you, what are you going to do? You're going to hit them back, right? That is your impulse. All of these situations, when someone borrows something from me and doesn't give it back, you ain't ever borrowing anything from me again. All of us should look at these four illustrations, and this is how long it should take you to have your impulsive response. That long. It's done. You got it. All of these situations that Jesus references are situations in which we know exactly what our impulse is. It's obvious. What is Jesus then saying to us? He's saying, slow down. He's saying, slow down. He's saying, put a chain on indwelling sin. He's saying, be slow to speak. Be slow to react. That's why elders and deacons are called to be sober-minded, to be moderate. Be slow. Train your self-interest so that you actually are controlling it. You're not making a knee-jerk reaction to exercise vengeance on someone because of what they've done to you. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul says, you all are suing each other. You ought to be willing even to allow yourself to be defrauded. Slow down, Christian. Be careful. Is that the most important thing for you to do? To justify and vindicate yourself? For whose glory? For yours or for God's? Be slow. Four illustrations in 29 through 30 about confrontation. And then there's three illustrations in 32 through 34 about engagement, not protecting myself passively, as it were, from people, but actively going into the backyard. What do I do? And beginning in verse 32, Jesus says, love those who actually don't love you and do good or be holy to those who actually are unholy to you. And he says, lend to those even, uh, even without despairing about getting it back. Christian, you're supposed to go into the backyard and be wise. You're supposed to assess people. You're supposed to know if someone loves you or not. You're supposed to know if someone will be holy towards you or not. And you need to have a hunch if someone's going to pay you back or not. Jesus is giving you permission to go into the world with wisdom, to assess people, get a feel for where they are, make judgments even about people. But then He tells you to do something else. He says, I want you to counteract their expectations. I want you to be risky. I want you to try loving them even though you're pretty sure they don't love you. I want you to try showing someone the holiness that is within you even though you're fairly sure you're never going to witness holiness from them. And I want you to lend to others in a way that's different than pagans lend. I don't want you to make the center of your life recouping your losses and despairing over what it it was that you lent to them. I want you to counteract their expectations. That's how you engage. I think it's very similar in 1 Peter 3, when Peter says to the church that you are to share the hope that is within you, but you're to do it with gentleness and respect. Love in the kingdom of God as it's lived out. Four illustrations about confrontation, three illustrations about what it looks like to engage the world. You know, let me finish with this. I think everyone would agree with this statement. None of us here would fashion a world like the one in which we live. I hope that you would admit that. We wouldn't fashion a world like the one in which we live. Look around you, are there improvements that you would do if you were the holy creator of all things? Would you design a world in which one war could decimate 3% of the world's population as happened in World War II? Would you create a world in which one million babies are aborted a year in your own country? Would you create a world in which 25 million kids in your own country come from single-parent homes? Would you do that? But this is the world that you have inherited. This is the world that the Holy Spirit has you living in. This is the world that you were called to go out into and to love, being marked by God, being marked by His kingdom work, being marked by your profession of faith, being marked by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is the world that you are called to go out into. And Jesus has a vision for what that looks like. It is not to go into the backyard and hold your breath until Jesus returns in Matthew 25. It's to go out into the world with a vision. And this is the vision of what it looks like to live in that backyard. You represent Jesus Christ, the one who saved you, Christian and God struck down His only begotten Son so that you would be different in the world, and you are His medicine for that world, this is the kingdom of God going into the backyard. It's very different than when a pagan goes into the backyard. But this is what the church is. This is who you are, Christian. Because the love of God ought to characterize the love that we express in the backyard. This is God's Word. We love His Word. Let's pray that He would train our hearts by that Word. Please pray with me, and then we'll move on in the service. Father, thank You for Your Word. Would You apply it to us in such a way that we are challenged by it, that we are alerted to our sinfulness, and that we are transformed by it. Challenge us, alert us to our sinfulness, transform us by Your rich mercy. We thank You for Your Word.